greater way. And we ask that you do this by your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can grab a seat. So do me a courtesy and turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through to 10. Uh, And I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in and we'll walk through the text in a moment. So hear the word of the Lord. It says this, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word, that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to their walk before me in faithfulness, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." Moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zariah, what, the son of, what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in the time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting blood, the blood of war on the belt around his waist, on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace." Deal loyally with the son of Barzilla, the Gileadite. Let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. And when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you're a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Fun passage. So, we've begun this new series as we're walking through the book of 1 Kings together. And we'll be spending the next few months walking through this text. Now, that's not to say that every week over the next few months we'll be in 1 Kings, but by and large, this is where we're living as a ministry. And I mentioned last week that we're spending a significant chunk of time in the Old Testament, and an awful lot of Christians struggle with what to do with the Old Testament. We recognize this is a part of the Bible. This is important somehow. This has some significance for us. Yes, we should pay attention to it, but how we pay attention to it and and how it relates to the work of Jesus in the New Testament is fuzzy for most of us. And so what tends to happen is that the passages in the Old Testament become sort of moral stories. They become the equivalent of Aesop's fables, not in the sense that we would say, no, this didn't happen, but in the sense that we would say, ah, this is an ancient story that's meant to tell us something about how we should live in the world. So people take passages like David and Goliath and say, be like David and slay your giants. They take passages like Samson and I don't know what you do with it. Be like Samson and don't cut your hair. I have no idea what you would do with that approach to this text. Uh, Be like David and kill your enemies. (laughs) So that approach becomes difficult. But the fact is that we recognize somehow that the Old Testament is significant. Somehow it's important. We just wrestle to see how that is the case. And yet, I really do think that the Old Testament is not meant to be read in that way, but it is the very framework and the building blocks upon which the gospel of Jesus is established. Um, 
Stephen and Wendy Stow, who are two of our life group leaders, uh, together we've been working on this podcast that's going to be coming out in the next few weeks, and I've just been sitting down with different scholars and authors and theologians and having conversations with them about issues in the Christian life. Uh, the first two episodes, um, talking with a, a New Testament scholar and then a, a systematic theologian about the question of who is Jesus. And literally every question I asked them, they would say, well, you kind of need to understand the Old Testament. And then they would draw me back to, you need to know why what Elijah did was significant to understand what Jesus is doing. You need to understand Israel's view of kingship to understand why Jesus says this. You need to understand this, this action of Moses to understand why Jesus did this. It, it is all built and suspended upon the framework of the Old Testament. Uh, Jamie Smith is a philosopher at Calvin College and Seminary, and he tells the story in his most recent book about this artist who lived in upstate New York who uh, had this really unique studio that he worked in. He was a painter. Uh, the lighting in this studio was, was different. It was sort of in the middle of this more hilly area, which affected the way that the sunlight came in along with the trees outside. And so all of his work was produced within this really uniquely lit space. And so when he died and it came time for him to sort of lay out what was going to happen to his work, uh, he donated it, I believe it was to the Chicago Museum of Art, but his stipulation was this, you can have my paintings, but you have to exactly replicate the lighting of the studio that I produced them in. And so you have this building in downtown Chicago that somehow has to recreate a studio in upstate New York in terms of lighting. But, but here was why he did that. Because I produced these paintings to be seen in this way and understood in this context. And I know we might have a few artists here who, who recognize this, but if art is not your thing and you think it's dumb and stupid and that's totally cool... Um, but within, within like the artistic world, especially in like visual arts, the frame that goes around the painting, the lighting of the museum is significant. And the Old Testament forms the sort of framework and the lighting within which we can see Christ. But we come to texts like this, and seeing Jesus feels like it becomes at least a little bit harder for us. Now, now the first half of this passage, the first four or five verses, seem pretty acceptable. It's David's final words to his son who's about to receive the kingdom of Israel. David has reigned for about 40 years. He's passing on advice, keep the commandments of God, obey the law. And that seems to make sense to us. But then he follows it up with like this godfather scene of like, yeah, you need to take care of this one. Be nice to this guy. You need to take care of this guy. And he uses this great phrase, don't let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Like I, how much better would the Godfather have been if that was how they ordered hits on people? It's just this very black metal description for having people executed. And so we see that, and, and we, we maybe wrestle with, okay, how, how does this work? Now, there's a couple things that, that we should say as, as we come to a text like this. First of all, whenever you come to the Bible, you need to ask the question, is this text being proscriptive or descriptive? Uh, that is to say, is the Bible simply documenting something that has happened, or is the Bible holding up this event as a paradigm to be followed? So, so great example of this. If you read the book of Job, Job is this man who goes through all sorts of terrible things, and his friends give him very long chunks of advice. And, it, and if you just had sort of this wooden approach to the Bible, I could say to you, well, the Bible says curse God and die, so get on with that. The Bible does say that, but that is Job's wife's advice to him. And if you read the book of Job, it's very clearly presented as bad advice. 
And so we have to ask this question, is the Bible just saying, hey, this is what was said, or is it saying, hey, this is what was said and you should go and do likewise? That requires us to be much more careful readers of the scriptures. Now, it's possible that that David's commands here to Solomon are a mixture of the two. I mean, if you read earlier in 1 Kings, the author has no problem saying David's not a great father. Uh, His son who tried to rebel against the true king, David says he never at any time told him, hey, you can't do this. So, So it could be possible that David's farewell speech here is kind of like Job's friend's advice, where it's a mixture of some good and sound principles, namely the first four verses, and then there's some maybe not so great principles that David uh, offers to Solomon, and, and the scripture is just documenting what David said. But I think that's probably the easy way out, uh, rather than digging deeper into this text and seeing that there's some depth here that in this strange way actually brings us to the feet of Christ. And so let's walk through this text together, and I think as we sort of break it apart, it'll begin to make sense why David issues these commands that seem so foreign to us. So it begins by telling us that At David's time to die, as it drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. So we have this movie-esque scene, this king of Israel who has been beloved, uh, who has not been without his issues, uh, but who by and large has been a man after God's own heart. He is nearing death. In, In the previous text, we knew that he was sort of hovering on the edge. He's had has these health issues. He can't take care of himself. Uh, He struggles to stay warm. And now he knows, this is it for me. And again, he uses this great phrase. I wish we'd use it more often when we were about to die. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Which is to say, everything dies and I'm about to also. Super optimistic. Um, And so he calls his son Solomon to him. And he says, here's my parting words. As As the king of Israel for these last 40 years, here's what I want you to understand as you become king. And so he says this, be strong. Show yourself the man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. So David's charge to Solomon is this. Be strong, and in your actions, demonstrate that you are, in fact, a man and not a boy any longer. Now, I realize that this concept of masculinity and manhood uh, for for some of us has been difficult to wrap our minds around. Uh, For some of us, it's it's difficult to um, detach that idea of manliness from a whole lot of cultural assumptions that have been bound up within it. So like when I was in high school, this movie 300 came out and me and my friends were obsessed with 300 and decided, because we didn't have any friends, that we were going to, I guess we had each other because it was me and my friends, but we were going to go be manly men, and we were going to base our concept of manly men on our experience of watching the movie 300. So, since we couldn't wage, wage war against the Persian army, um, we sort of based it on just like, I guess, yelling things, and, and this is Sparta sort of mentality, and... and we spent like our weekends in the forests around Fishhawk chopping down trees because lumberjacks are manly and they chop down trees. Uh, and then we spent uh, time that wasn't devoted to chopping down trees uh, damming up rivers with rocks because we thought like that's sort of masculine. Uh, and I don't know how many homes might have been flooded because we were damming the rivers of Fishhawk as these crazy high school students. 
Um, we were like, okay, well, what else is manly? Well, Vikings are kind of manly, and they feast, and where else would you feast but Golden Corral? So we're chopping down trees, we're damming rivers in Fishhawk Ranch, we're eating Golden Corral until we gain way too much weight. Every, every like three or four weeks, we would dig a hole in our parents' backyard because somehow we equated digging holes with manliness, and we would grill meat over the hole. There's still a dead patch of grass in my mom and dad's backyard from where we just built fires and grilled food. So we sort of bought into this cultural understanding of manliness, which categorizes it as somebody who's proficient in the outdoors, knows how to change a tire, kills animals with his bare hands, you know, skins them, and and Davy Crockett type guy. And we weren't good at any of it. (laughs) But that was our understanding of masculinity. And, And you may be in this room, and that is the understanding of masculinity that you've been brought up in. And I'll tell you that, unfortunately, that understanding of what it means to be a man has also permeated the church. A number of years ago, I would have been 19 or 20 at the time, I was leading a middle school guy's life group. So these are 11 and 12-year-olds, can't even shave yet, like they are children. Um, And somehow I thought it would be a good idea to work through the book of Hebrews, which if you've worked through the book of Hebrews, it's a lot for middle schoolers. But I'm, I'm 19 or 20. I don't own a home, and I didn't really want to have it at my parents' house. And so there was a, an older couple in the church. And by older, I mean like 30s or 40s. And they said, hey, you can, you can do the group at my house. And so we're working through this great piece of Hebrews about who Jesus is and, and how he's better than, than the Old Testament shadows that point to him. And the husband who owns this house walks in and says, hang on a second, Travis. I got something to show these boys. And just pulls out a sword. <laughs> And he holds the sword up and he says, see this, guys? God wants you to be a warrior like William Wallace in Braveheart. And I'm like 19, and I was just like, this is so dumb. But like, like, I don't know what to do. He's got a sword. Like, how do, I, how do I stop this? And he just sort of holds it up, and he's like, yeah, see that? All right, get back to your stuff now. So there is this sort of weird overly macho, bizarre understanding of manhood in the church. And the fact is that I'm sure there's guys in this room who are way into that stuff. Man, like riding motorcycles and listening to heavy metal sounds like a good time to you, and that's awesome. But there are guys in this room who are like, "Ah, I would rather listen to Radiohead and talk about Kierkegaard. And, And for most of your life, there's been this sense that because you don't have those sort of interests... Uh, the sort of person who just like hunts animals with a compound bow, that somehow you're not living up to the, the understanding of masculinity that permeates Christianity. But, but here's what David says to his son. He says, show yourself a man. And then how does he say that David is to do that? It is to keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his commandments, his statutes, his uh, rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. So guys in this room, I need you to hear me. The litmus test of manhood biblically is not whether you know how to use a crossbow. The the litmus test of manhood biblically is whether you love and obey the word of God. That is the dividing line between children and men, not your proficiency in mixed martial arts or whatever else you have been told is an understanding of masculinity. David calls Solomon to a life of strength, but he says, if you want to show yourself a man, this is what you must do. Obey the scriptures. Know the scriptures. Walk in the commandments of scripture. Now, 
the tragedy in all of this is that right now, this sort of window in which we live in Western American Christianity is sort of experiencing this deficit of men who are men by the standards which the Bible calls us to. There's a whole lot of guys who can explain how Jesus is kind of like Optimus Prime or William Wallace in Braveheart. But there are few men who know the scriptures and walk in obedience to them. Uh, Vody Bauckham is a Baptist pastor. He's a seminary president in South Africa now. And he sort of draws attention to this, um, this deficit and the way that somehow in the church we just think that it's okay, it's acceptable. So, so imagine this. If you were to go to a mechanic shop and talk to a man who has been a mechanic for five to ten years, and you were to ask him, hey, can you explain to me how to work on cars, how, how to work in a shop, how to, how to manage tools, how to uh, repair and diagnose problems with cars. And his response was, I don't really know a whole lot about that. Why don't you talk to my boss? You would either think he's not a mechanic or he should be fired from his job and you'd never let him work on your car. But, but in so much of the church, you have a conversation with a man who, who claims he's followed the Lord for five, 10, 15 years. Can you teach me scripture? Can you teach me theology? Can you, can you explain to me church history? And their response is, ask your pastor. The Bible does not accept that as a viable excuse for manhood. And guys in this room, hear me. We cannot accept that. The standard is far higher than your competency in hunting. It is your competency and your obedience to the scriptures. That is David's call to his son. Show yourself a man by keeping the charge of the Lord, walking in his way, keeping his statutes. And, and women in this room, I, I need you to hear me when I say this. You, you don't just have the right, but you have the obligation to expect better from us. To not settle for men who may make a lot of money, but know nothing of the word of God. This is David's call on his son that he would not just be strong, but that he would demonstrate his manhood and his masculinity in his love of scripture and his obedience to the call of God on his life. But there's something else that, that you should notice about this text that's gonna help us understand the second half of what David says. And it's, it's not immediately obvious when you're reading this in the English language. But pay attention again to what David says to Solomon. He says this, be strong and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper. Now this opening phrase, after David tells Solomon, hey, I'm gonna die, he follows this up with a statement, be strong, show yourself a man. David is actually quoting a previous portion of scripture, the book of Joshua. Uh, namely, he is quoting Moses' farewell speech to Joshua. So if you're new to the church, you're new to Christianity, these names are things you've heard but don't quite know. Moses is the man who led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness. He leads Israel to the edge of the promised land. It's this land that God has given them. But Moses doesn't enter into the promised land. At that point, he's old, he's weary, he's on the verge of death, kind of like David. He passes the torch to this younger man named Joshua. And Joshua's task as he enters the promised land is to drive out the people that are in the promised land. And, and what is sort of apparent as you read the whole of the Old Testament witness is that the people in this land are evil beyond comprehension. 
They're sacrificing their children to other gods. They're worshiping idols. There's all sorts of perversion and wickedness that has sort of permeated this land. And so Moses says to Joshua, you got a hard fight ahead of you. There are people in this country that God has given to us that are cruel and wicked. And if you want to see the people of God flourish, you're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to drive them out. And there's this understanding, as you read the scriptures, that should Joshua fail to do that, it will destroy this nation. Like, if you fail to accomplish this, this is going to come back on you in a terrible way. And the things that they do will slowly permeate what you do. And just as they've sacrificed their children to idols, you guys will start to do the same thing because you'll just blend in with the culture around you. So here's the point. Here's what's happening. The implication is that David is to Solomon what Moses is to Joshua. That there is this correlation that Solomon sits on the edge of this possible season of blessing for the people of God. But in order for that to happen, the lawless men who would tear down the kingdom of God have to be driven out. Now, there's more, and there's more that you're not going to see if you're just reading the Bible in English. Thankfully, God didn't write the Bible in English. So David has this allusion to uh, Solomon being like a second Joshua, but then he makes this point. He tells him to keep the commandments of God, and he, in, in Hebrew, utters seven different phrases to describe the word of God and the consequences of obedience. And for any ancient Jew reading this, they see seven phrases describing Torah, their mind immediately goes to Genesis 1. Because there's seven days of creation. It's the number of completeness. And then at the end, David makes this statement in verse 3. He says that if you do these things, you will prosper. The Hebrew word here is sechel with a nice flemmy ha, sachel. And that word means you will be wise. So the Jewish mind in reading this is going Genesis 1. And then David says to him, if you do these things, you will be wise, which is the exact word that Satan uses to describe the consequences of eating from the tree in the Garden of Eden. So they're reading this and thinking, Genesis. So Solomon is like another Adam. And, and, and here's, here's the point that David is making. The wisdom that Adam sought from the tree of knowledge in rebellion will actually be found in the word of God through obedience. D David's final commandment here is, is a plea to Solomon. It's, as David sort of harkens back to Joshua, he harkens back to Adam, his farewell speech sort of encapsulates his hope for his son. It's maybe, just maybe, you will be the better Adam that these people need. Maybe, just maybe, you will be the better Joshua. Maybe you will drive out the serpents from the garden of God so that God's people can flourish. Maybe you will drive out idolatry from the land of God so the people of God will worship him in holiness. Maybe you will be what we are waiting for. And for a brief moment, if you've been reading 1 Kings, it looks like Solomon might be that. He follows David's commands. You need to have these people removed. By removed, I mean killed. Because they're rebellious. They've waged a war against the king. They've tried to overthrow leadership in the past. You need to deal with these people in justice, and you need to have them put to death. And Solomon goes through with that. And then Solomon builds the temple. And it looks again like maybe, just maybe, Solomon is the one that Israel's been waiting for. 
Uh, the one who's going to bring blessing to the land, the one who's going to undo what Adam has done, the one who's going to, to finally wipe out this idolatry that has always been a part of Israel. And then you get to chapter 11. And in your Bible, the heading is, Solomon turns from the Lord. And whatever promise existed in this moment in Solomon's life vanishes. You know, I think of um, Luke 24, and uh, it's after Jesus has died, it's after he's risen again, there's these disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus sort of draws near to them, and he asks, why are you sad? And they say, I mean, have you not heard this, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, strong in, in word and deed, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel, but he's dead. And if David had lived to see Solomon in chapter 11, his response would have been, I had hoped that you would be the one to save us. But you brought the serpents into the garden. You brought the idols into the temple. The very things that I had hoped you would do away with, you've embraced. David saw through a glass dimly what he knew the people of God needed. They needed a new Adam. They needed a better Joshua. But what David didn't know is that Solomon never could have been the man that he wanted. It's almost a century later, the text that Zyder read for us in worship takes place. And Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, the, the serpents in the garden of God who are turning God's people away from truth. And he says, someone greater than Solomon is here the better Adam, who in the wilderness refuses to bend the knee against the serpent. The greater Joshua, who conquers his enemies not first by the sword, but by dying for their sins. What David wants for Solomon and for the people of Israel is fulfilled in David's greater son, Christ Jesus. In the middle of uh, David's godfather scene at the end of this text, he makes a statement. He says, deal loyally with the sons of Berzali, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with him, such for with such loyalty, he met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And so he says, hey, there's a whole lot of snakes in the garden. There's a whole lot of problems. But, but this man was faithful. This is somebody who you should let sit at your table. And in an ancient kingdom, the table of the king is the center of what happens. If you are invited to the king's table, it's a sign of friendship. It's a sign of trust. It's a sign of fellowship. That's a sign that you are in good standing. At the kingdom of God, there is a table at the center. For a long time, it was at the center of every church that was built. It was the table of communion. And what is astounding, what the great mystery of the gospel is, is that you and I, in our sin, fall into the category of people that David says you need to have put to death because they're rebels and they're going to undo what God is doing. And yet, we are invited to the table, not as rebels, but as friends, because the king himself has dealt with our guilt in his body on the cross. And so we move now into a time of communion. And if you are a Christian, you are invited to the table, not because you have done anything wonderful, but because the king has dealt with your guilt for you. 
and no longer counts you as a traitor, but as a friend, a son, and a daughter. 